0: Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome
1: to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to be with you this day. Um, If I can find my notes, I'm going to be just fine. Um, I do want to thank you for listening to this show, making it uh, one of the most popular shows on the Voice America Business Channel. Uh, we uh, want to let you know and remind you that I am the uh, editor of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, and you can subscribe to that by going to seven, uh, calling 718-457-1426 or go to miningstocks.com. We'd like to remind you of chenpicks.com. Picks.com is a place to go to pick up Chen Lin's newsletter, what is Chen buying, what is Chen selling, especially if you have an interest in the biotech sector. That's one of Chen's strengths, the energy sector as well as gold and the gold mining stocks, uh, too. Uh, we also like to remind you that Michael Oliver's website is olivermsa.com, olivermsa.com. You can go there to sign up for Michael's excellent work. And a mark of Michael's excellent work is the fact that he's with us almost every week. Whenever he's available and whenever I can get him, we have him here. so uh, And he'll be talking uh, with us in just a moment or so. Before we get started with today's show, I would like to welcome Gatling Explorations as a new sponsor to the show. I'm very excited about adding this company to my uh, newsletter, Recommendations, J. Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech stock. Scatling has an excellent exploration team headed by Dale Ginn, and they are developing the Ladner project in Ontario that already has just a whisker under a million ounces, high-grade ounces, uh, and it is my firm belief that this company is likely to expand that resource uh, to uh, several million ounces. And it is in the middle of an area where there are a lot of hungry mills that would love to have Uh, some high-grade ore feeds. So this is one that I think is very much worth keeping an eye on. Uh, Of course, that's why I purchased the stock myself, why I have it in my newsletter. And uh, sometime in the near future, we'll be talking to their CEO about uh, that company's prospects. Also, before we get started today, I want to mention that Radisson Mining, which has been a sponsor in this show a few weeks ago, uh, announced a blockbuster drill hole today. It intersected 66.7 grams of gold over 4.7 meters, but more importantly, it was 300 meters beneath the company's current resource uh, on its O'Brien mine in Quebec. Now, this intersection not only dramatically increases the implied high-grade ounces, but what it pr- also provides is uh, very good mining widths, you know, the the width at which you have to mine something or close to four uh, meters of width is good, mining width means less dilution, but also there's a lot of disseminated lower grade gold mineralization around the vein structure, so uh, it should be a very, very positive economics for this project. Uh, of course, we have a lot of time and a lot of work remains uh, to uh, be able to take that to the bank, but it is looking very, very positive, and uh, I'm really pleased to own this stock and to have it in my newsletter. Uh, even though they aren't currently a, a sponsor, it's it's one I would suggest you might want to pick up a copy of my newsletter, read about it, because I'll certainly be uh, writing about it this weekend. Um, aside from uh, Gatling, uh, our sponsors uh, for this week's show, Novel Resources, Great Bear Resources, Irving Resources, and I'm looking for some really exciting news from uh, in the near future from all of these sponsors. Uh, Novel Resources, by the end of this week, or perhaps by the middle of November from both its EGNA projects and uh, possibly from its Beaten Creeks project as well. Great Bear has a drill, drill uh, news flow almost non-stop, but last week I, I really found the news that the company is planning to dole out a 2% net smelter return to its shareholders as a hugely positive event, at least for the longer term. Very exciting development in my view for Great Bear. And Irving Resources should also be coming out with some, I I expect, some high-grade assays. Of course, uh, one never knows until the assays are reported from the lab. Uh, But that is looking very, very exciting as well. It's a Quentin Henning company. Newmont Gold is, uh, Newmont Mining is part of that, owns a big chunk of those shares, uh, as does Sumitomo. So obviously, the big boys see some big potential or they wouldn't be involved. Big companies don't get involved in small projects, so keep that in mind with this minuscule market cap company. I've titled today's show, How Do We Invest When Gold Goes Parabolic? David McElvenny, Daniel McAdams, and Michael Oliver are our return guests for this week. Well, once you realize how sick the existing fraudulent fiat global monetary system is, and how vulnerable it is to total collapse, you begin to realize that gold is likely destined to rise exponentially in value as measured by an increasingly worthless fiat currency. When the dollar becomes worthless or approaches worthlessness uh, there, there it's hard to say where the price of gold will go as measured in that increasingly worthless currency perhaps a less stall less do- a dollar doomsday scenario is more likely uh, is more likely than, than something at end of the world scenario in which uh, you know we, we went through a couple of those experiences at least I did as an older guy I remember very vividly uh, 1980 when gold, rose that decade uh, in the 70s from $35 to $850 uh, by 2000. Uh, uh, then there's the 2000s when gold was uh, in the early 2000s when it was around $250 went to $1900. We could very well be uh, witnessing something of that magnitude again. Uh, so we'll ask David McIlvaney to provide his ideas on, in either uh, extreme case or something more moderate like we've experienced in, the recent, uh, in recent history. And indeed, it looks like uh, we are in the early stages of a major bull market for precious metals. When it's over, it may very well be a great time uh, to, um, to go back to the general stock market. But uh, I, I think at this point in time, that looks probably the opposite is what you want to do. We'll be talking to Michael Oliver in a moment and, and get his latest uh, thoughts on that on that topic. Uh, we don't often talk about foreign policy on this show, but of course, it is very much related to the markets. Uh, as the U.S. uses its power on the world stage to force its will on other nations, President Trump has been roundly criticized not only by Democrats but also by some of the Republicans for his recent decision to reduce America's influence in Syria. But will that hurt America economically? And we'll take a we'll talk to Daniel McAdams to try to get his views on, on that and how likely it is that we actually will pull out of the Middle East or out of Syria. Um, all those are s- speculations. What we really like to do is talk to Michael Oliver because he doesn't speculate very much anyway. Michael basically looks at what the numbers are telling him. Um, so um, welcome, Michael, and thank you very much for being with us again.
2: Hi, Jay. Good to be back.
1: Always good to have you with me every week, almost every week, whenever we can get you, as I tell my listeners, we're going to try to have you here with us because I value your insights so much. Um, Michael, this morning when I asked you what you'd like to talk about today, you said, and I quote, MSA has long said that focusing on near-term data points and presume new bullish economic realities does not offset a decade of central bank-caused upward pricing of stocks. What we have here is not a concrete and steel skyscraper, but a plaster and plywood construct. Uh, could you give us be a bit more specific about that what you're talking about? I, I gather you're talking about a stock market that you think is is, is very shaky. Do I have that right?
2: right it's uh, technically we uh, we have numbers below the market, not far below the the kind of numbers that you would get in a mild correction you know people think five, ten percent to. Corrective yeah. type thing. We argue if you do that, you're going to collapse. Uh, we've got structures below the market on momentum, not clear on price, but very clear on momentum. That if you have that type of correction, it will not be a correction. It will morph into something more dramatic. <clears throat> the, the question, though, is a lot of the data points of the last few years have gotten better. The type mm-hmm. of stuff that people focus on, you know, the uh, GDP yeah. and the uh, whatever metric you want, earnings yeah. and so forth. And mm-hmm. uh, they're certainly better than they were over the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. But you've got to factor in the issue of pricing. Mm-hmm. If the S&P were where it was 10 years ago, let's say uh, 13, 14, 1500, yeah. it had not risen artificially by central bank promotion of the stock market. Cause when they, they created the liquidity, they wanted it to go into stocks. Bernanke stated it uh, overtly. that uh, That's what his intention was mm-hmm. to create a good sentiment out there. Uh, in fact, the investors, their preference was to put it into stocks. But then again, that's when the S&P was coming up off of a low in the 600s, in the 1100s in 2011, 2012, 1300 at the Bin Laden high. and So that's, that's a different price level than where we are now. So everything between, let's say, uh, 1100 and where we are now was largely created by central banks. Now at the top... As we're topping out. In fact, if you look at the S and P in most indexes, go back almost two years to January of 2018, you see mostly lateral action. There's repeated teasing new price highs, but really they're not significant. They're, we're uh, four or five percent above, uh, about four percent above where the S and P was in January 2018. Uh huh. It's almost two years. So that's hardly. Yeah. Sugars up 18 percent in that period. Mm-hmm. You know? Anyway. Um, the problem is that the structure below the market, if you look at an S&P price chart, it looks like a skyscraper. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, we argue that most of that skyscraper was not built by legitimate market demand based mm-hmm. on real fundamentals. It was based on central bank stimulus, liquidity that the investors did put to work in that area. They overput it to work. That's the problem. Most uh-huh. markets peak with excessive pricing. You know, they, they go too far. Uh, that's just a sort of normal in markets, especially the stock market. It's driven largely by sentiment. Uh, and once they overstep what should have been a normal high, and they, they create a blow-off or an excessive high, especially one based on the factors we've had in play, uh, that market's in, in trouble. I don't care if there's good news at the top or not. That's delusionary, because what's mm-hmm. below you is the issue. The 2,000 points of S&P pricing, of the last decade that was based on nothing but liquidity. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a lot of evidence, technically you can see it, that investors are moving out of the stock market and into other arenas. Mm -hmm. One piece of evidence we're about to get in two days, the end of the month, uh, is closed by the Bloomberg Commodity Index, which by our metrics is a major breakout, assuming it could Mm -hmm. just hang around where it is now. Mm -hmm. That is uh, evidence that money is moving into the commodity category, and it should, because that category is priced out. It collapsed in 2016, had a recovery through 2018, but not all that much, pulled back to test its lows uh, the last six months, held, and is turning up again. So it's really been more or less lateral for about three or more years. So it's proven it doesn't want to go down anymore. The issue is when does it go up, and we see numbers that it's crossing this month, that indicated it wants to have that launch. That mm-hmm. will surprise most people. It will induce further investment flows out of stocks into commodities and commodity-related mm-hmm. stocks. Uh, and that should be a shock for a lot of market participants, both mm-hmm. in the bond market, who don't expect inflation, especially commodity price inflation, and in the stock market. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we think those pieces of evidence are occurring. We're also watching the dollar index because it's been asleep for 14 months you can draw a line back to August of 2018 and just draw it right across and that's where we are now it had about a 3% range <laughs> it's been very quiet mm-hmm. but steady uh, gold didn't care about the steady dollar it went up anyway if the dollar's about to break down and we're toying with numbers right now that it, it could signal that uh, mm-hmm. then you've got two dormant markets that are waking up
1: yeah big ones
2: investor preference flows
1: mm-hmm. big ones big ones important yeah. ones they've been asleep uh, so uh, just in summing up here it seems to me what you're saying is it's it's as if we were standing on the uh, on the upper decks of the Empire State Building but instead of steel and um, yeah instead right. of steel and cement underneath us we have what bamboo and what did you say it's built up?
2: plaster and plywood not bamboo bamboo uh, okay, <laughs> okay.
1: <laughs> well that's true it is yeah but I don't know it's still a bamboo uh, that far uh, above anyway you're not
2: standing on a, on a concrete structure you're standing right. on um,
1: Right. Uh, yeah, and the important thing is that a couple of these other markets that you feel are so key to seeing uh, gold take off, um, the dollar and the commodities markets look like they're, they're very close to a turn, potentially, huh?
2: Yes, uh, the Bloomberg is already at levels that if it could just hang around through Thursday's close, it will achieve it. The dollar index, if it slips just a little bit, will break below its level. So it's interesting that those two have maneuvered to their starting gates. One being mm-hmm. a downside starting gate, the other being an upside gate. We think mm-hmm. when those two engage, and even if just one engages, the Bloomberg uh, that will have a shock effect and definitely be wind at the back of the gold market. Because yeah. gold's done all it's done over the last year without any commodity inflation.
1: Yeah, you that's true. Get that's true. And, you know, yeah. All right, Michael, we'll, we'll have to let it go with that very very interesting thoughts on this whole uh, on these markets and how they're interrelated. I really appreciate that, those insights. Very important. Thank you so much for being with us, and uh, we'll look to do it again next week. Folks, uh, don't go away. Daniel McAdams of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity will be with me right after the break to talk about geopolitics, America's role uh, in the Middle East and elsewhere. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Daniel McAdams.
2: Its flagship assets are located in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. Novo has recently partnered with Sumitomo Corporation of Japan to evaluate, advance, and develop the company's Australian gold projects. With over $40 million in cash and $60 million committed from Sumitomo, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia.
1: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me an old friend, Daniel McAdams. Well, Daniel's not so old. He's not as old as I am. He is a longtime friend. I guess that's a better way of putting it. And he is the executive director of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. Uh, He served as a foreign affairs advisor to U.S. Congressman Ron Paul from 2001 until Dr. Paul's retirement at the end of 2012 and now he's continuing to work with Dr. Paul at the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. Daniel has a, a, a very enviable record in the in foreign affairs uh, around the world involved in, uh, in his bio, his bio is posted at the uh, at, at our website um, uh, at the Voice America Business Channel so uh, if you want to read that I've been, uh, I'd like you to take a look and, and become more familiar with, with Daniel and also with the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. RonPaulInstitute.org is where you need to go for that. Thanks for joining me again, Daniel. Hey, Jay. It's always great to be with you. It's great to have you with me. And, um, what, uh, you and did you and Dr. Paul talk today uh, on the Ron Paul Institute? Because I know uh, usually the two of you discuss some issue that's in the public domain, but I think you might have had some things on from a recent... Uh, from, a, uh, from a recent event in Washington. Is that right? Uh, no, today Dr. Paul is out giving a speech somewhere, so he's on
3: the road. So I had my good friend Jim Jatras join me. Uh, he's a former U.S. diplomat, and he worked in the Senate. Uh, and we basically just chewed up uh, three of what I think are the top headlines uh, in foreign affairs for the week. So we just kind of did a bang, bang, bang job with him. So it was, it was a lot of fun.
1: Well, talk to us about that, Daniel. What were those topics?
3: Well, the first one was the protests in Lebanon, what's going on, who's behind it, who benefits, uh, and then uh, that's not really on the radar. People aren't really thinking about no, it in those not terms. Not too much.
1: Uh uh-uh.
3: Yeah, and the second is the uh, the U.S. policy in Syria. We actually brought troops back from Iraq back into Syria to take up positions in the Deir ez province to uh, basically <laughs> to guard the oil and to give it to the Kurds, and uh, so that's a very dangerous policy and the secretary of defense esper was asked in a press conference uh about what's the u.s going to do if anyone challenges them and he said we're going to blow them to bits basically and then follow-up question was well what if they're syrians or russians are you still going to do that and he said yes we'll engage them so this is pretty big a big deal that's not really being covered that well and the Mm -hmm. third one we covered is this um fascinating witness before the impeachment the house impeachment uh committees today, uh, who was the uh, he was on the National Security Council staff. He was a John Bolton protege, a Ukrainian born expert who handled Ukraine for the White House. uh, And he is testifying that he is very upset with President Trump uh, demanding that Ukraine investigate American citizens, which, of course, is, is not the case. So those are the three the three biggies that we are looking at today for the week.
1: Um, maybe we could maybe you could just talk about the lebanon situation again what what's what's going on there well there have been protests for the
3: past week or so a lot of people out in the street and the prime minister the current prime minister hariri has just tendered his resignation over them uh and it, it has a lot of the hallmarks that we have identified in color revolutions uh it's people in the street, number one. The people are protesting. They're demanding the government resign. It's over, quote, corruption, which is the exact same thing we we saw in Ukraine. We see it in Hong Kong. We see it elsewhere where the fingers of the U.S. government are heavily involved. Uh, and you have uh, the International Monetary Fund, the, all the international financial organizations saying, hey, if you adopt our reforms, we've got a lot of money for you. Uh, oh. So basically... And you have, you know, Hezbollah is a political party in Lebanon. It's a major political party. It's in government. It has a large number of seats in the parliament, and it holds three cabinet positions. So Hezbollah is, of course, enemy number one for U.S. and Israel and for the Saudis. So you ask, you know, uh, uh, who benefits, who wants to see the government fall in Lebanon and it's pretty obvious that the U.S. is not unhappy. And in fact, the State Department said we're with the people who are trying to overthrow the government. We're, we're, we're all for it. We think it's great. The destabilizing hmm. Lebanon is, I think, and we sort of came to the conclusion, is a way of lighting another brush fire. Uh, mm-hmm. Now that Syria is kind of cleaning itself up, we want mm-hmm. to wrong foot these people in any way we can. So mm-hmm. it's really the one to watch, I think, in the region.
1: And why would we want to do that, Daniel? I mean, all the history and Trump talked about it when he was running for, for president uh, about the disasters in, in Libya and in Iraq. Everywhere we go, we we stir things up and create chaos and uh, and and war and suffering, and we spend tremendous amounts of money. Maybe that's the key. I mean, I, I wanted to ask you just sort of a, a broad based question because. I'm old enough to remember President Eisenhower's warning of the military-industrial complex. He was so concerned that we would have that the military-industrial complex would be so uh, it, it would it would be such a, a lucrative business that we would have to just that that's what would what would drive our politics. And so I, I'm I'm just trying to understand, as I think a lot of a lot of Americans are trying to understand when they when they voice support for people like Tulsi Gabbro uh, Gabbard. Or, or your boss, Ron Paul, who was never really allowed to gain a lot of traction through the media because of his, because of his views and, and desires for peace around the world. Um, what, what, I mean, who benefits? I mean, what, so who, what, what, who benefits from this? Is it the, is it yeah, the people nothing. that, that, that the, the, the military, the people that make money from war? Or who benefits from this destabilization? Everywhere we go, we get into these wars and destabilize things.
3: Well, you know, the history of, of, of empires, the Roman Empire, certainly, and other empires throughout history, you would have the, you know, the, the, the empire go into a far-off land and create disorder. Uh, and the Brits did this in, in India a lot, too. You go in there and create disorder to give the impression, to give the feeling that you're solving the destabilized situation. You're stabilizing what you've already destabilized. Therefore, you can never leave. And there's a lot of that. But sometimes it's easier when you want to focus on the, quote, big picture to kind of narrow your focus to a specific. And if I were Mm -hmm. going to do that, and you told me to do it right now, I would just say Kurt Volker. Uh, And Mm -hmm. that is a good example of how the whole thing works. Kurt Volker uh, was the president's special assistant for Ukraine and Georgia. Mm -hmm. Uh, He is a career diplomat, career State Department guy. He volunteered to go in there and deal with Ukraine for free hey, I don't even want a salary. No problem. Ah. I'll do it for free. I'll do it right. gratis. So well, why would he do that? What a good-spirited what a good guy. Well, he's also the head of the John McCain Institute, right? Uh-huh. So he's got an uh-huh. agenda. But that's not all. Uh, he has uh, held positions with a major Washington lobbying firm, the BGR Group. Mm-hmm. And what is the BGR? What is their customer? Oh, you have to scratch a little bit. The customer is Raytheon. Uh, Raytheon Uh is the one that gives the money to the BGR, which is affiliated with Volcker. What does Raytheon want to do? Raytheon wants nothing more than to sell Javelin missiles. They Uh love selling these because it makes them rich. And Mm -hmm. what does Kurt Volcker want? Kurt Volcker is lobbying the Trump administration to send Javelin missiles to Ukraine. So there you have it, corruption in a nutshell. That's Mm -hmm. how it works. Uh, And that is just like the tip of the iceberg of how these, I hate to say, excuse me for saying the word, Jay, but prostitutes, how they mm-hmm. work inside Washington and become rich while giving the impression, oh, I'm a public servant, I'm doing the public good. Yeah. Right. That's right. not what's happening. So that's right. what I was, That's a snapshot of it.
1: Well, we are an empire, and you don't have to study history too much to know that empires do nasty things to human beings. And so I guess uh, this empire is no different. We may have pre- a pretense of being the saviors of the world, but how can anyone really believe that when you look at the devastation that's gone on in in the Middle East after we uh, send our bombers over there and and all the clandestine stuff that we're doing everywhere around the world. Well, Daniel, I'd like to get some sense of how big – is maybe you can define first of all what is the military industrial complex? What does it involve? In my way of thinking, it's not just the companies that make the weapons and they're increasingly sophisticated, high tech weapons these days, but also the intelligence agencies. Um, you know, companies uh, that that go out and well, every part of the military. And but it must have its tentacles into our economy to such a great extent that to try to cut this back would you know, at least in the short term, would be very painful for the United States. I always thought when your boss was running for president and he said, just bring them home, just bring them home, bring the boys home. And I thought, yeah, I'd, I'd love that. I wish that could happen. But what's going to happen then to all these people that are unemployed? Certainly, eventually, if you left the market work, people would find work in civilian areas. But um, there would be a lot of pain whether or not, given the fact that we have – Delves so deeply into the world's affairs, and of course, we own the world's currencies, uh, the world's uh, reserve currency too, which allows us to finance all this stuff. But, but, how, what is the, the military-industrial complex, and what is it? How would you define it? And then, secondly, uh, how much money does that military-industrial complex spend to do what it does and to make all these profits for companies and people involved in the in that enterprise?
3: Well, I would say first just on the issue of pain, you're talking about how there would be pain for people brought back, uh, you know. But that's the same issue that I know you've talked about, Dr. Paul, and a lot of people talk about with the collapse, with the economic collapse of 2008. Oh, if we had just let these, uh, these, these businesses fail that needed to fail, it yeah. would have been pain at first, but then you could have yes. rebuilt the economy. And instead, right. basically, it's like, you, it's like you've got cancer. And you go yeah. in and they say, oh, no, here's, it's no problem. Take these pain pills. Oh, okay. I feel better. I feel better. You haven't gotten rid of the problem. The problem is you've got these people that are sucking the economy dry well over a trillion dollars a year we spend on the military uh, industrial complex, the global military empire, whatever you want to call it. A trillion dollars a year that's not being spent. And don't even just look at it, Jay, as a dollar figure, but look at it. Uh, as uh, the the waste of, of, of potential resources, look at all the young people in the sciences. Mm-hmm. And I, really, this is focused home for me because my son's studying uh, aerospace engineering right now at Texas mm-hmm. A&M. And mm-hmm. these young people are being sucked into, hey, there's a lot of great jobs building weapons, guys. Uh, mm-hmm. And just think of if, if the aerospace engineers were involved in, in, in fixing planes that are falling out of the sky mm-hmm. instead of, Figuring out how to get better rockets uh, to kill mm-hmm. people, you know. Yeah. So it's our 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 great future is being compromised uh, by this bloody machine that enriches itself really literally off the blood of the rest of the world. It's a vampire. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, a, no doubt that I completely agree with you. I just wonder, you know. I know you and Ron Paul are doing all you can to educate people as to what is actually going on, as opposed to the facade that we're given, the propaganda that we're given about how. America is so wonderful doing the things it does with its military around the world in 200, I don't know, it's 116 countries or more, more than that. I don't know. It's a, every country in the world, the U.S. has some presence in, uh, involved in the politics of other countries. But of course, no country dare influence our elections, but we're certainly free to do that to whomever we please overseas, right? I guess that's what empires do.
3: Yeah, we do do
1: it overseas, and, and people, I
3: think, are catching on. But, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't write off the American people either, Jay, because, you know, when, when President Trump announced that we're getting out of Syria, which was about three minutes before he announced, no, we're not getting out of Syria. Yeah. But nevertheless, you know, he announced we're getting out of Syria. And so they did a poll. I think it was Gallup that did the poll. And they asked Americans what he thought about it. 57% of Republicans said, we're all for it. Let's do that. Yeah. And only 53% of Democrats said, we're against it.
0: So oh, okay. we had
3: people like Chuck Schumer and all these guys, uh, screaming and freaking out in washington dc a good chunk of their base was thinking well what's so bad about that so mm-hmm. you, you have the political elites inside the beltway so alienated from the electorate on things like that people don't trust the news media you look at you look at polls on how americans view the mainstream media 70 80 or more percent realize it's all lies so yeah. I, i'm not as negative yeah. Uh, you know, because I think people are waking up. But the problem is they're looking for alternatives, and the good, the big social media companies are silencing the alternatives as fast as they can. So it's not, it's not smooth sailing yet for alternative sources.
1: Well, they're trying to steer everybody to socialism, I guess. And, of course, uh, you and Ron know very well, and most people who have thought about history know very well that socialism doesn't work. Capitalism is the wealth creator. It is a system that allows people, when they're free, to create great amounts of wealth. Daniel, we are out of time, and there's so many things I wanted to ask you about. So we should try to get you on again. We'll try to do that as soon as possible. It's the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity, ronpaulinstitute.org. Thank you so much, Daniel, for being with us. And uh, folks, uh, we do have to go to break now, but don't go away because I'm going to have David McElvany with me. Uh, We're certainly spending an awful lot of money on uh, the war machinery, but the United States has built up its debt into tremendous levels that are, in my view, um, going to lead to some very significant problems ahead. And uh, I think David McIlvaney will have some opinions about that as well. Uh, What are we going to do when gold goes parabolic? That's what we want to talk to David about. So don't go away. We'll be right back with David McIlvaney.
3: Great Bear Resources, trading under GBR on the TSX and GTBDF on the OTCQB, is a gold exploration company focused on their wholly owned Dixie project in the prolific Red Lake Mining District of Canada. Having recently made four major gold discoveries, GBR is now fully funded to drill 90,000 meters through to the year 2020 as part of a very active exploration program. Rob McEwen of McEwen Mining, a Red Lake veteran, is a significant shareholder following a recent $5.7 million investment. To stay up to date,
0: visit GreatBearResources.ca. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
1: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have David McIlvaney with me once again. He is the president of the McIlvaney Financial Companies, the McIlvaney Wealth Management and ICA. It's a precious metals firm uh, that can help you protect your investments, including gold and in your IRA, and uh, you can easily access the ICA website by going to uh, my website at uh, JTaylorMedia.com. Clicking on the ICA banner up towards the top on the left-hand side will get you right to uh, will get you right to ICA. I should mention that I had the pleasure of meeting David in person for the first time here in Queens, New York City, uh, last week when he spoke to a group of investors. Uh, his message was, of course, largely familiar to me and to um, a lot of the listeners. Well, all of our listeners, I presume, in this show, uh, as a believer in gold. But it's a, a message that people need to hear to prepare for what are likely to be some uh, very difficult times ahead. Life um, Sometimes we sail through and things seem fairly easy, and then sometimes things can get very difficult. We've had uh, quite a few years here now, financially speaking, where times have been pretty easy from 2009 on till about now, one of the longest stock market bulls that we've had in our history, if not the longest. Uh, but things may be getting a little rocky ahead of us, so we want to be prepared for that. So... I want to thank you, David, for joining me again today.
4: Jay Gate, great, great to be with you again.
1: It's always good to have you. I, I think before we get started on a, a discussion of the markets and related topics, can you take a minute to explain one of the uh, companies under the McLevaney umbrella, that is ICA that I just referred to, what it has to offer, and then perhaps also outline how beneficial gold can be used uh, in general in a portfolio to enhance returns and reduce risk.
4: Yeah, you know, we've been in the metals business since 1972. My dad was involved with just a few other guys in helping get gold legalized January 1st, 1975. So it's a privilege that we can take for granted today. But from 1933 up until January 1st, 1975, it was illegal. We found a workaround, uh, and so we're in business and had sort of a first-mover advantage in the bullion space uh, is starting in 72. Um, the the business is very well capitalized. It has an amazing staff, and you know, average tenure in the business uh, with the folks that work with us um, twenty five years plus. Wow, uh, the average. We, we've got a few in the thirty six to thirty eight range. And That's unheard of. If they'll ever retire, but they love what they do, <laughs> and we love them being here. So, um, yeah, we help folks with precious metals. It's one of the aspects that we do. IRAs. Um, we were the first company to put physical metals into an IRA when the rules changed back in the mid eighties. And, uh, so creating innovations within the space is kind of how we started and how we continue to, to, to make our mark, uh, love long-term relationships and adding value, um, through, through all, all the things that we do.
1: Okay. So owning gold in your IRA IRA is one of the things you can do at ICA. So, um,
4: And and all all the other precious metals, too, of course, silver and the platinum group metals. Um, And and whenever one looks more attractive than the other, uh, we're able to help with uh, the advice and the advisory side of that so that someone knows what to do, when to do it. And I think one of the things that also sets us apart is we have a a reduction strategy, an exit strategy, as and when gold does incredibly well um we kind of know where to go next and and everyone else in the gold space i think to me feels like pay less shoes uh you walk in you buy a pair of shoes and they never want to see you again for us (laughs) we develop long-term relationships advisory relationships and and have an exit strategy as well so again i think we're just engaged in a
1: different way you know david i'm just thinking in an ira then probably you can switch from let's say when it makes sense, to, when silver, as it is now, very undervalued relative to gold, you could sell some of your gold and buy some silver and not worry uh, about a tax event, I suppose, in an IRA, right? Because, I mean, it would be just like my IRA in the stock market. I can buy and sell things, and I don't have to worry about taxes until I, have, until I pay, until I pull the money out of my IRA.
4: That's exactly right. So the gold-silver ratio is something that we've very, very effectively traded for the last 48 years platinum and palladium as well. The last time we moved from palladium back to platinum, we increased ounces by 350%. So Mm. we're, we're, you know, if you're looking for a strategy and not a static portfolio, Mm
2: -hmm. then
4: working with someone who's got the experience in that advisor role, um, I don't think you'll find anybody more, uh, we've got a lot of years in it. So, uh, love to love to help if we can
1: more experienced and well-capitalized and uh, love what you do. Those are all attributes, I think, that that, uh, I would want to see in someone that was managing my money. Um, Maybe just briefly, David, very briefly, because I know we're going to run out of time real fast here. McIlvany Wealth Management, what they do?
4: Yeah, I think from a a different perspective, we focus on asset management with an emphasis on hard assets. So Mm -hmm. hard assets are broadly defined by us as real estate, as infrastructure, as global natural resources, and as precious metals. Uh, This is not the physical precious metals. These would be your your mining companies. So these are the four areas where we focus. And, again, the focus is on hard assets. Uh, We want uh, well-supported dividends. Uh, We focus on income generation as a part of a total return equation, Uh, low turnover, and focus a lot on, on the culture of the business that we're investing in. The quality mm-hmm. of the assets is very important, but being able to really cultivate those assets and grow them is very different because, you know, you look at corporate culture today, and mm-hmm. frankly, uh, you're rewarded for taking care of yourself. So the C-suite, when you're investing in publicly traded companies, we're really interested in who's at the top, who's in the middle, how they execute on a plan, how they take care of, of their investors And so a lot of our due diligence is beyond the financial aspects of the company to these people that we have confidence in. So um, hard assets is kind of our our, our claim to fame. Doug Noland is a part of the team. Uh, Mm -hmm. Lila Murphy is a part of the team. And so we we worry from the top down and invest from the bottom up. And that brings in sort of the macro economic overlay, um, but with fundamental uh you know minutia if you will or micro analysis with at the company specific level.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah I believe uh, Doug Nolan and Lila were, were both with Prudent Bear in the past, Prudent Bear Fund and David Tice, who I know very well. They they both did they did both of them work for Prudent Bear at some time in the past? Lila so and right. Doug? They worked with yeah. Tice.
4: That's right. Mm-hmm. Lila has twenty five years. She did she worked with two of the hedge funds that David Tice had. And then one of the natural resource mutual funds before all of that was sold to Federated in 2008. So uh, we have a very dynamic team that is very engaged, again, with the combination of macro and micro. And Doug's just a very capable guy, um, super smart. And I, if you haven't read his credit bubble bulletin, it's on our website, mwealthm.com. Uh, every every week, he still writes yeah. the credit bubble bulletin. He's been doing that for twenty plus years.
1: Yeah, and you also do a, an excellent uh, podcast every week too. I should tell people where can they get that.
4: Um, commentary dot com. Yeah. Uh, you can yeah. find it on iTunes or anywhere podcasts are. But this is, mm-hmm. I think we've done close yeah. to six hundred and twenty episodes. That's eleven uh. years and and counting. And yeah,
1: uh, <laughs> yeah they're they're excellent. We're uh, somebody. Yeah, they're excellent, and, and you really boil down a lot of information from the past week, uh, and it's very helpful. I listen to it as often as I can. Uh, last week when you were in New York, uh, you're in your presentation that I listened to, your PowerPoint uh, presentation, you showed, you showed a group of Chinese and American investors. Uh, uh, the title of your presentation was Shelter from the Coming Financial Storm. Um, You know, although 2008-2009 was indeed a financial storm, if not a hurricane, I would suggest closer to a hurricane, on the surface, things seem to have calmed down, and and Trump administration, of course, is crowing about how great the economy is. So, I mean, I, I suspect that a lot of people are basically saying, well, what are you worried about, Taylor? Look at the stock market. It's still hanging up there. It even made a new high the other day. So, why do you think that we're facing a financial storm, David? Just perhaps summarize why you think that's why we're in trouble? Sure.
4: Well, a couple of things. One, you know, certainly when when things can't possibly get better than they are, um, maybe that is a turning point within the markets. And, you know, so we're at 50-year lows on unemployment. Uh, GDP growth is not that bad. Uh, You know, on the other hand, we see inflation in terms of a recovery cycle. This is the lowest inflation we've ever seen in a recovery cycle, Uh 2.4%. Uh-huh. And you know we're just not seeing what we'd normally see in this in this environment. Now, I mean, you and I have had conversations about debt on this program and others, and obviously the total quantity of debt is is a big deal. Uh, corporate debt has grown, governmental debt has grown, but I think one of the things that we we should also focus on is the earnings of the companies that support that in corporate debt and, and uh-huh. the size of GDP and, and GDP growth relative to the growth in debt. And I think this is a really important clue for your listeners. Yep. If you look at debt to EBITDA, that is earnings before interest, tax depreciation, and amortization, mm-hmm. you always see that ratio um, shrink in a recovery um, mm-hmm. because your earnings are improving and your debt's relatively static. And then in a recession, of course, you see the number expand pretty dramatically um, as your earnings shrink, and and your debt stays. It's, it's kind of the burden that hangs out for a while. Well, right. different than any other cycle, different than any other cycle. Here we have debt to EBITDA spiking now, and we are not in a recession. What does that tell you? It tells you that in corporate America, it has loaded the boat with debt, and the concern of being able to service that... In in, in a soft patch of some sort, a soft landing of some sort, or God forbid a recession, uh, it's going to get really ugly really fast. And corporate America already has this magical tell, debt to even a, which is telling you um, it's bad now. And should we see a soft patch, it's going to go from bad to terribly worse.
1: I just have the feeling that the Fed is really trying to stay out in front of anything as terrible as 2008, 2009. You sort of referred to that in your discussion the other day, the other evening here in in Queens about how you think that uh, that, that our um, that our Fed chairman sort of looked over the precipice and got scared, got the bejeebers scared out of him, and he all of a sudden turned the opposite way and started to um, provide what the what the screaming children on Wall Street were asking for, I guess. Yep, Q four two
4: thousand eighteen. He was moving a very different direction. We were in a tightening cycle. And, you know, uh, what what you heard from him was a very different message than you heard from Mm -hmm. Yellen and Bernanke. And he was going to bring some discipline. And Mm -hmm. all of a sudden, you know, that first week of January, he freaks out about something, walks in with prepared remarks and and says, "Uh, we're done. We're going to be lowering rates. We're going to be lowering rates multiple times and it's a total 180, an about face from we're, we're tightening and we're giving ourselves some latitude and we're going to normalize rates. Now, all of a sudden, we, we can't do that. And I think the reality is, Jay, we've got so much debt in the system. As you begin to raise the level of interest, that's where you see that that debt is unsustainable. Mm-hmm. And so what they've tried to manage is the burden through manipulating interest rates. It's only been a few years that we've you know, ever seen negative yielding bonds, but between 12 and 17 trillion dollars in negative yielding bonds. And I think that number grows through time because governments of the world are desperate to keep the game going. And if they are continuing to grow the, to, the total quantity of debt, the only way they can keep the wheels from coming off is by manipulating interest rates to lower levels to make the burden of debt from a cash flow standpoint actually affordable. We're going back to that. You know, debt to EBITDA, if you're talking about corporations, or debt relative to GDP, um, you can, you can add 20 trillion dollars more in in, in U.S. Uh, you know federal debt. You just mm-hmm. have to keep interest rates at zero or move them negative.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, keep the game going is what they've been doing now for with every cycle. It seems, of course, we've had these uh, you know these very severe downturns and and it really frightened the central bankers, I think. Uh, so it's not just a matter of keeping the game going, but I think it's trying to keep the, the whole system from imploding, David, from what I see, because, and, and what really stands out in my way of thinking is that with each credit cycle, the rates drop to new lows and new highs and new lows. And so it seems to me that, you know, as you mentioned debt to GDP, as debt grows, I like to say debt grows almost exponentially and GDP grows in a linear fashion, if at all, and and that doesn't work long term. So as you, so it, it, yeah. I mean, what did we get to on the ten year? Um, did we get to four percent? We didn't get to. I don't know. Somewhere around there was a, pretty much the limit, right? And then things started to break down. The equity market started to tank, and um, yeah, it's. A, it, it, I think that it was. It just scares them to death, and they have to keep printing money. So here's the thing that's. I mean, there's a couple things that are different this cycle. You mentioned. Uh, another one is that they're starting stimulus at the top of the cycle, which never used to happen. The other thing is negative rates, David. So I'd like to ask you a little bit about your thoughts on negative rates. I saw somewhere that something like 94% of investment-grade bonds are denominated in U.S. dollars. So most of Europe has gone negative, Germany and most of the countries, I believe. And so the pension funds and people are having to get positive yield are sending money to the U.S. So um, and buying treasuries. So, I mean, do you see any 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 reason to think that rates are going to turn around and go higher? Could you perceive of anything like that?
4: Well, certainly not if it's being directed by the Federal Reserve because the consequences are too grave. You have a totally leveraged financial system and you can't allow the cost involved in that to, to, to move higher. It, it's game mm-hmm. over. So, you know, yes, the market can ultimately... You know, jerk the reins from the Fed's hands, and you know you could get a spike in interest rates. You could have your one and a half, two percent jump to four pretty quickly. Uh, But again, that's that's a a market reaction, and we're still in this phase where the Fed's trying to manage things. One of the things that's interesting in the last few years is as the quantity of bonds that have nominal negative nominal yields has increased, Mm -hmm. the total quantity has increased. So is the price of gold, and I think really what that says, if you want to understand what a negative rate is, if, you, know, you, you, you take $100 down to the bank, and the banker says, I promise you, you will not get $100 back. I'm going to give you less, <laughs> and no, I'm not going to pay interest, but I'm not going to give you all your money back, and mm-hmm. and with that kind of motivation, a depositor says, why don't I put my money in the mattress? And And that's what you see with an increase in the price of gold here in the last couple of years. Total quantity of negative-yielding bonds continues to increase, and the money mattress syndrome is in, in, in effect, except people aren't moving you know, with $100 bills to the mattress. They're moving with a few ounces here and there. People don't remember how small the gold market is and, mm-hmm. and how well-contained supply and demand typically is. When you're looking at industrial demand for gold and your central bank demand for gold, the swing vote is the investor, and it doesn't take very many investors to move the price of gold. It's it, it very supply and elastic, and it's why you can see major moves, uh, because there's just not a lot of room for somebody to step in with a $1 billion, $5 billion, a $100 billion. Imagine 1% of the national net worth here in the United States. In June, it was calculated at $113 trillion as household net worth. Less mm-hmm. than a one percent allocation to gold, one trillion dollars, you'd say, Well, that's mm-hmm. not much of a move into gold. No, it's not. And you can't do it. Not unless you're talking about gold at five, six, seven, eight, ten thousand dollars an ounce. Yeah. It's too small a market. And mm-hmm. so I, I think this is again where we're already seeing positive traction in the gold price as central bankers are playing with negative rates. What they don't understand is that they are playing with fire. They're playing oh. with the market psychology. What does it mean to have a totally different relationship with your money, with your savings? Right. And they haven't they haven't experienced it yet. But I think they're gonna they're gonna test the the, 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 uh, the psychological realities of that.
1: All right, David. With just a couple of minutes left, uh, would we've had in my lifetime, uh, in my adult lifetime, we've seen a couple of major moves, a parabolic from thirty five to eight hundred dollars, eight fifty for gold. Uh, And then from the low 200s to 1900 in 2011, uh, do you see something like that, this cycle potentially? And if so, then the big question for today's show is what should people be looking to do when we get to that point in time? And in your presentation, you had a wonderful, uh, uh, the Dow to gold ratio, which I've seen many times. To me, that is perhaps the answer to the question, but I'll let you talk about it with a minute and a half left.
4: Yeah, the cycle is similar because people have not changed through time. It doesn't matter how much you change technology, you and I will still tend towards, in a part of the business cycle, to be incredibly greedy, be willing to take risk and put capital at risk, in another part of the cycle, be incredibly fearful, rein in and, and take risk off the table, move to cash, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So what you see in the Dow-Gold ratio going back to 1900 are these extreme swings from greed to fear. And, you know, we are, you know, clearly the, the, the most overblown stock market was in the year 2000. And, you know, we are now at levels uh, that were the equivalent of 1929. The stock market mm-hmm. is, is raging, doing great. Gold, nobody really cares about it. It's not in the limelight for the investors. And it, when you look at that chart, what it gives you is, is a map for when you want to have a greater emphasis on paper assets and Mm -hmm. when you want to have a greater emphasis on hard assets. And the higher the number, the higher the ratio, uh, the more attractive metals are. So right now it does make sense to be uh, adding to a metals position, holding the metals that you have, and be very clear on what your exit strategy is. So you can take those metals and significantly increase your financial footprint by moving laterally into the world of of financial assets or other Mm -hmm. tangible assets, uh, assuming they're well-priced.
1: Excellent. We'll have to leave it go at that, David. Thank you so much for being with us again. It's always a pleasure to have you, and uh, I hope we could do it again sometime real soon. And again, uh, I hope that my listeners will tune in to David's podcast. Uh, It's very much worthwhile spending a half an hour. I think that's about what it is, It isn't usually, David, a half an hour or so. Um, Very, very Half an hour. Yeah, Jay,
4: Jay, it was great seeing you this week, uh, this last week in New York. And uh, finally meeting face-to-face, I look forward to getting to spend some more one-on-one time with you when I'm
1: back in that direction. Look forward to that as well, David. Thank you so much. Well, folks, next week, um, Alistair McLeod will be back with us, and I think uh, Michael Oliver as well. And I expect that we will likely have a surprise guest. I'm not quite sure who that will be. uh, But until then, I look forward to uh, talking with you next week at the same time. Until then, goodbye, and God's blessings to you.